Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Matthew or any other gospel applies a text from the Old Testament, that's exactly what it is, an application of something old to a new situation. The original teaching itself is static, but the way it is used depends on the new situation presented by the author. In the case of Isaiah chapter 5, we know that the Lord is frustrated with worthless fruit, something Matthew addressed earlier in the curse of the fig tree. So why does Matthew bring up the parable of the vineyard? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 to 39. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 352 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In the prophecy of Isaiah, there is a famous song of the vineyard. It's the story of a landowner and a vineyard. And the Lord is frustrated because the vineyard, the vines, are his people, and the fruit they're producing is worthless. In the New Testament, this teaching keeps coming up again and again, specifically the teaching of the vine from Isaiah. But the way that John or Matthew or other gospels handle the metaphor of the vineyard has an interesting twist because of the insertion of Jesus in the story. Remember, if you follow the storyline of the Bible, Jesus doesn't appear until the New Testament. The New Testament is the chapter of the story that deals with the invitation to the nations to finally come under the authority of the law of Moses. So hearing Isaiah, who's made functional here in the text of the parable, in such a way that we understand how Matthew is Teaching the parable and applying it to this new situation is critical. The cool thing about how the New Testament works is that it's very close reading of biblical texts in order to come up with solutions for a present situation. It's interesting in Isaiah 5 because there's a rhetorical question where God says, what could have been done more to my vineyard? What else could be done that I didn't do in it? And then he goes on to say, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, that it brought forth wild grapes. But that's the question. What more could have been done? Because this is strange. If God is the husbandman and has a good grape and a good vine, and he plants a good vine and good grapes, why would bad grapes come out of it? Why would he have to destroy it? What happened in the meantime between when he planted this vineyard and when he came to get his grapes 
that all of a sudden there's no good grapes, that it doesn't make sense. So the question is, what happened in that in-between time? We don't know when we read Isaiah 5. So Jesus, very deftly, in his parable, fills in that in-between time with another parable that so carefully complements what's going on in Isaiah 5, because Jesus refers explicitly with these descriptions of how the vineyard was planted and built and prepared to hearken back to Isaiah 5, but then does something very different than Isaiah 5 itself. Why would he refer to Isaiah 5 using this language, but then kind of talk a little bit differently? Because in Isaiah 5, it's all about the fruit, whereas in Matthew 21, it's all about the people working in the vineyard. How do these two fit together? And this is how the close reader of the New Testament, someone who really cares about understanding this text, has to see how these two stories fit together so that you understand the full meaning of what Matthew is trying to draw out by pulling them into one story. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So the the first portion of the verse is lifted from Isaiah chapter 5. But now at the end of verse 33, we hear this interesting twist that deals with that in-between time, which is how Jesus is bringing the judgment of Isaiah 5 down on the heads of those living in Jerusalem now. I'll repeat what we've said over and over again about Matthew chapter 21. This is the march on Jerusalem. This is the cursing of the fig tree that did not bear fruit. This is the reckoning with those who remained behind and feel safe and secure with their little temple cult operation inside their human city. It's not the Lord's city. The Lord is not there. That is not his place. Paul, carrying the tradition of Ezekiel in Galatians, explains to us explicitly that Scripture in the Old Testament is dealing with the Jerusalem above, the heavenly city. So now there's a reckoning with the earthly city that has not borne fruit. And we're talking about that in-between period where people kept messing up and God kept giving them chances to reorient themselves towards the city whose name is the Lord is there. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. It's so cool. Like you said, Father, he adds this little piece about the owner of the vineyard renting it out and leaving. So then the question is, hmm, Jesus brought in these renters, people who are responsible for the vines. God in Isaiah 5 says that, you know, if this isn't going to produce any fruit, I'm just going to destroy the vineyard. I'm going to get out of the winemaking business. This is not profitable. This isn't doing anything good. Why should I have to kill myself over having a vineyard? This is a bad investment. So God isn't destroying the vineyard just for his pleasure because he wants to go and destroy the thing that he built. This is strange. It has to do with these husbandmen, with these people who are supposed to be taking care of the vineyard in his absence. Now we're going to understand more about this because we want to know why did the 
vine that was planted so well turn out so badly? When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. He sent those who were obedient to his will. Remember, this is the famous thulos. These are the slaves of God who are the prophets, the teachers, the ones whom the Lord sends who don't speak their own opinions. They speak what they were given to speak. Lo, this that has touched your lips will take away your iniquities and purge away your sins because my words are righteous. Speak my words. This is the central teaching of the Byzantine liturgy. It's what everybody hears when they take communion and the anamnesis of the reading that you heard in the first part of the service. My slaves are sent to say and do what I dictate in my law. And what did you do to them? You beat up one of them, you killed another, and then you stoned the other guy. And there were three, which means I gave you three chances in Scripture. When you have a third chance, it's not good news. In popular culture, it takes 10,000 hours to establish a habit. In the Bible, it takes three times. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You killed three of them, and I knew that you were not interested in giving up the fruit. I sent servants, I sent slaves to come and collect the fruit. That's all they had to do. They came, and I set up this vineyard. I gave you guys a spot to take care of it. And so then I sent people to go and collect the fruit. And they came, and there was no fruit to be given to them. Now, were the renters withholding the fruit, or was there no fruit to give? Jesus is silent on that point. It's not important. What's important is that the people who came to collect fruit never left. Or if they did leave, they left empty-handed. There was no fruit rendered to God. And I think it's beautiful that you brought up this example about the coal touching the lips of Isaiah because it comes right in the next chapter in Isaiah 6, right after Isaiah 5. And This is the call, so to speak, the purification of the mouth of Isaiah so that when he goes to the people, even if they're not willing to hear, that's in Isaiah 6, right? Those who have ears will not hear. He comes to bring this word to collect the fruit, and there's nothing to collect, and he's just abused. And so he goes back empty-handed. So now we see why God is coming to a point where he's just going to destroy the vineyard because he's not getting anything from the vine. There is no fruit being rendered to him. The whole point of planting it was to get fruit, and the whole point of putting the renters there was to take care of it and to coax the fruit out of the vine. If they were good workers, they would be taking care of the vines, making sure the vines were producing great fruit, and rendering that fruit to the owner And keeping the part that was due to them. I mean, they were renters, you know, so they owed a portion of it to the landowner, and then they would keep the rest for themselves. But they got neither. They wanted to keep the whole thing, but not render any fruit whatsoever. They wanted to steal the land and the fruit from the one who owned the land. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. 
this is a mashal that shows a complete cycle within an incomplete cycle. I want to explain this. The previous verse had one, two, three chances, and they were spent, which is ominous, because you don't get more than three chances. So the first set of three within this parable were the first chance. Now in verse 36, we have a second chance, and here this employment of the term polis, which means many, it's unfortunate they said larger because that's a different word in Greek. He sent more workers. It was a more plenteous number of people. It was a larger number. But the idea is that the Lord, in response to our rebellion, is more gracious towards us. This is the second chance, the famous second chance of the New Testament. Because he didn't get what he was supposed to get. We behaved terribly. And now, instead of turning his back on us, which he has the right to do as one treated so miserably by those he employed, he instead makes a more generous attempt to try to turn our hearts away from wickedness. But the next time he comes, there will be no more chances. In Isaiah, the vine is the people, and the fruit is what the people is supposed to be producing, what it's supposed to be rendering to God. It's what there's, you know, we've been saying this a lot, Father. We talk a lot about producing the fruit based on the teaching. But then there are certain ones who are there in place who are supposed to be creating a good environment and taking care of these vines so that they produce as much fruit as possible on behalf of the one who owns the land and owns the vineyard. This role of these husbandmen, of these renters, is to coax this out of them. So that when I think that, okay, the teaching is supposed to instill this vine, the people— so that they're producing fruit. They're supposed to be producing good works, righteous works according to the gospel, according to the teaching that was given by the one who owns the land, right? So I see these renters as the teachers. And from Hosea, we know that the teachers are the chief priests and the elders, precisely the ones to whom Jesus is speaking here in Jerusalem, the ones who are in charge of God's land, Jerusalem, God's people, the Jerusalemites, the Judahites, the sons of Israel, producing their fruits of righteousness on this teaching. But rather than making sure that the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, the people of Israel are producing the correct fruit, they want to own Jerusalem. They want to own the people, and whatever fruit they may or may not produce, they want to keep for themselves. Now, in Isaiah 5, it says they're actually not producing any fruit. They're like wild grapes, which, you know, if you've actually seen wild grapes, they're really puny. You can't do anything with them. They don't taste all that great. There is nothing good that's being produced of this, so the people who are there in Jerusalem who are supposed to be taking care of the people, making sure that the people are producing what they're supposed to produce, they're not doing their job. They run this cultic racket to take from the people as opposed to cultivate the people and cultivate the teaching so that they're producing the righteous fruit for the one who owns them, who owns Jerusalem, who owns Judah, the Lord. So those of you who are hunkering down waiting for the apocalypse 
after the election, making sure that you have enough toilet paper in your cupboard and, I don't know, Cheerios and milk or whatever it is you think you need, (laughs) the more prepared you are, the more you'll have to answer when the Lord comes, and he will come. Whether he comes after the American election or he comes in a hundred years, the Lord is coming. And your ample supply of toilet paper is not going to save you. You must make sure your toilet paper is unto righteousness, and God will come to collect the toilet paper and the Cheerios on your shelves for his purposes, not for your purposes. So when you hunker down, you don't hunker down for yourself. You hunker down for the least of these, and that's the fruit of this teaching that he's looking to collect. But if you hunker down for the least of these, you won't be in Jerusalem when he comes because the poor don't live in Jerusalem. They live outside the city. That is the deal in Matthew chapter 21. And the second chance allows for the inclusion of those outside the city, the nations. Now, we know that once they're brought in, they'll be as wicked as you because that's the system. But if you're looking inside you're going to find hypocrisy, greed, selfishness, tribalism, xenophobia. You're going to find all the very things that are born out of our lust for survival. And Dr. Benton, I know you've been working hard on the book of the Twelve, and you have your first volume coming out, God willing, very soon on Hosea. One of the things you've stressed over and over again is that the lust for security is the condemnation against Jerusalem. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. This is bad news. This is when Christians get all excited. Ooh, Jesus is coming. No, friends. Because if Jesus comes, and he has already come, that means you are living in the too late time. That's why we're lucky that there's a second coming, because it's, again, another chance. But within the construct of this parable, there are no chances once you murder the son. There is no hope. Remember, Zechariah, you're going to look upon the one whom you pierced. And then what? That's also Matthew chapter 21. Right. This is exactly what St. Paul is talking about when he talks about the difference between a son and a slave. It's the inheritance. I hear people a lot of times talk about how the difference between a slave and a son is that you feel warm and cuddly and you hug your son more. No, that's not the case. I mean, look around us. There's plenty of sons that are not being cuddled by their father. That doesn't make you a son. You're a son legally because you appear on a birth certificate and the father appears on your birth certificate as your legal father. And if you're going to have another legal father, you have to go through a process with the courts to get someone registered as your father. Fathers and son are not biological, even in our case. They are legal. The legal distinction here is that this one is the heir, meaning that after the father is done owning the vineyard, whether he dies or he moves on, the next in line to own it is the son. Since the owner of the vineyard is gone, 
effectively it's the heir who is in control because it's in his best interest. This is why in the ancient world it was always very dangerous for a king to go on a military campaign because someone could take the throne because it was empty. You put an heir on the throne in your absence so that you didn't have a usurper or a tyrant who would come and take the throne. Here he sends his son, the heir, the next owner of the vineyard, to the vineyard. The ones who are renting the vine, who are renting the land, are no dummies. They know exactly what's going on here. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. It's the terminology, as you were just explaining, Rich, about the Roman household. It's the terminology of Galatians, where Paul is explaining adoption, and Jesus as the son of the promise through the line of Isaac. You know, I want to go back to a discussion we had earlier about this word respect. The word entrepo, which is to show reverence for, is related to the idea of shame in the original usage here in the text. So they had no shame. Shame and honor are also important Roman concepts. A person who has shame will show the correct reverence. And in a Roman household, there is respect towards the son. You would feel ashamed to disrespect the son because it reflects on the honor of the patrician. The reason in management, even to this day, you always speak highly of those above you in the organizational structure is because if you undermine the honor of those above you, it undermines the whole organization. It's convenient for someone to say, oh, this is happening because my boss made a bad decision or my boss's boss made a bad decision. But that's a rookie move. Your disagreement with your boss or those above you in the leadership chain is your problem. You cannot make it the problem of those in your care. You have to protect the honor of those above you because it is good for the well-being of the body. A person who has no shame doesn't care how their actions reflect on the patrician. And so therefore, they show no respect towards the son. We think the son is an individual. So we think we can throw the son under the bus and then be fine with the father, but not so in a Roman household. There's no mistaking that this attack against the son, not to mention all the slaves, is an attack against the honor of the one who owns the land. Their desire to own it is a direct disrespectful action towards the owner because they didn't have respect for the one who owned the land. This is the deep critique against the ones who are supposed to be teaching. When you're supposed to be coaxing the fruit out of the people, which is the job of every priest, of every pastor, of every teacher, to be coaxing these fruit out, to be creating the conditions so that they can act correctly according to the teaching, to the teaching, not your teaching, the teaching that comes from God, who owns the land, who owns the teaching, who owns the people you're teaching. When you say, we want to own this, it's our vine, and we want the fruit for us. You know, this harkens back to other metaphors we have of the bad king or the bad shepherd who is supposed to be taking care of the flock 
on behalf of the one who owns the flock, but is just eating the sheep. They want to take advantage for themselves to get something for themselves out of this. Now's our chance. We can own this vineyard. As soon as the leader of the flock, the pastor, the one who is in charge of the vineyard, thinks that they are something and are no longer a employee of the one who owns the land, then they abuse anyone who would try to teach them something else, any of these other slaves, and they would take everything that this poor vine produces for themselves to devour and to fill their own stomachs with. This is Micah. This is the famous people soup of Micah. The rulers of the people in Jerusalem make out of the people their soup. They chop them up and throw them in a pot to be consumed. This is what happens when you have no shame and you're willing to dishonor the patrician by murdering his son. You throw the whole household away and you think you're protecting the household. I mean, this is the mentality of human revolution. This is why protest culture is silly in the end. Because if you protest and you win, you become the man. There's no other option. That's the problem with Marxism. It's not the critique. It's not Marx. His critique is valid. The problem is it's impossible to be a revolutionary who implements a world in which you don't become the thing that needs to be revolted against. It's impossible because you are a human being. That's what's so abhorrent about Plato's philosopher tyrant. The only hope is the momentum of scripture, which is constantly tearing down, not building. Jesus is tearing down Jerusalem, and they're trying to build it, to protect it, to care for it. What people struggle to understand, Rich, is every time we assert something human in our ministry, we are claiming ownership of something that doesn't belong to us, and that's why Jerusalem is under condemnation in Matthew 21. And what's the outcome? They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember, this is Jesus speaking about himself in the Gospel of Matthew. So he knows what's coming, and he knows that once this happens, there's going to be a price to pay. We have to think of it this way. We can't start immediately rushing to grace and forgiveness and resurrection, because you're going to make it your grace and your forgiveness and your resurrection, not God's, and you'll become just like the rulers of Jerusalem. It's called realized eschatology. There is no second coming until there is a second coming, which means that we are living on the razor's edge of our hypocrisy in anticipation of the reckoning for what we did to the son and heir of God the Father, who is our patrician. The first entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was using Roman metaphor and Roman symbols to show that Jesus is the anti-Caesar. And now Jesus tells this parable on his second entry into Jerusalem to cut down the chief priests and the elders, the Jewish owners of Jerusalem. Jesus cuts down the supposed Gentile usurpers of Jerusalem and the supposed Jewish usurpers of Jerusalem to say, this land this city belongs to God alone. Thank you very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature.
Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.